0: Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel East Anaheim.
1: Real quick, uh, to get us started, I want to share a couple of things that are going on. Um, The first one is uh, we know Andrew, our brother, who's not here tonight, is actually leaving us. Talking about
2: that for a couple weeks. He's moving up north to uh, Palo Alto, Bay Area. Um,
1: work for Elon Musk. So we're excited for him, this new opportunity, uh, but we're going to have a going away party for on May 13th. So not this Saturday, but next Saturday, it'll be at a uh, park here at Yorba region. And I had said that it would be, we'd start at 11, but we're pushing that back to one o'clock. I didn't realize there was a conflict with a uh, woman's tea that was happening here that Saturday that was at 11. So this way, if ladies wanted to go to the women's, go to that, and then um, join us at the park and uh, celebrate Andrew. Uh, it'll be a great time. Uh, I'm gonna barbecue some hamburgers. they have been called the best hamburgers in the world, side. <laughs> but they're really good. Um, I don't skip on the, the ingredients. Uh, and I'm asking if you come, if you could bring either a dessert Or a side dish or either a side dish or a dessert. Yeah. One or the other. And that you could let us know that you're coming. You could let me know through text. You could text me or uh, you could respond on the devoted um, social media on the Facebook page and say you're coming and which one you're going to bring. And that would be helpful. That way I know how much meat to get for the burgers and stuff like that. But I think it'll be a great time and uh, a good way to, Let Andrew know he's appreciated and cared for, and that'll be a good time. So any questions about that? Saturday, the 13th, one o'clock at Yorba Regional Park. Um, I'm gonna provide the burgers. You guys need to let me know you're coming. And if you could bring either a side dish or a dessert, that would be awesome. Secondly, there's still time if you're interested in coming to Israel in July. I got some more flyers here. There's a, Interest meeting this Saturday on Zoom. Uh, I got that information, too, if you're interested in it. Now, my heart is that every, every Christian would get to go to Israel. I've been a part of a, a bunch of groups going there, especially groups of younger people. I got to live in Israel and oversee Bible college there, Bible college. And so during that time, there was probably a, a little over 100 Bible college students, young people that came from America uh, to Israel, lived with me for three months to Israel. And I just saw that being in the Holy Land just completely changed their lives, changed their walks with in a 100% positive way. And I want everybody to experience that. I realize that the trips that the church makes, they're awesome. Pastor Bob and Amir's trip, fantastic. If you could do that, do it. But I know that that's out of reach for some people. They're a little too expensive. We're going, and February's hard. So we're doing a trip in the summer. So if you're a student, if you're a teacher, it works for you. And it's a little bit cheaper, the, the price. So hopefully it'll get some people the ability to go and experience the Holy Land uh, that wouldn't have that opportunity otherwise. So, again, if you're interested in that, let me know. Uh, next, you probably realize there's one of these little things that they have at the tables, COVID, at the restaurant. QR codes if you guys could scan this it's Aaron one over there tonight that'll give you the links to devoted social media we have uh, Ryan working and dialing in kind of recording the messages and things like that so we have a YouTube channel where uh, he posts those so if for whatever reason you can't be here and you want to watch that message or
2: you know fall behind and we'll be Ephesians. Um, you, you could do that. Stay on up to date with the, uh, the sermons and, and
1: the. Um, we also have a Facebook group page uh, where it's a great way to stay on track with what's going on, to stay in fellowship with each other, to respond to things like this barbecue and say, "Yeah, I'm coming." This is what I'm bringing, uh, and, and things like that. So I highly recommend that you get, uh, scan the QR code that you subscribe to those things and. Um, yeah, I think it'll be a good thing. Also, we have a text alert. Um, I send out a text alert every time we're going to meet, saying, hey, we're meeting tonight. Or if, God forbid, something happens and, and we can't meet, I could tell you guys, hey, we're not meeting tonight, things like that. I could say, hey, on uh, Saturday when we're having the barbecue, I'm over by the softball field, number four, meet me there, you know, that type of thing. Uh, so, to get those text alerts, you're going to want to text the number 59769. That's who you're texting it to. And you text CEA devoted, all one word. And that'll subscribe you to the, the text alerts. It's like the ones from the church. Um, you're not going to get a million texts. Not like getting a group message where someone responds and everybody gets it and it drives you nuts. It's, you, you can't respond to it. Only I could send them out. So uh, it's a great way to help us kind of stay in track of what's going on. So, any questions of what's going on or any of that? So I thought, uh, before we get into the message, I thought it would be a little fun tonight to do a little Bible trivia. So I got a few of these uh, gift cards for Chick-fil-A. Get a free meal at Chick-fil-A, free Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. So whoever could
2: get these right 1st we'll get one of those. So the first question I have, who were Miriam's brothers? Huh? Ooh, yes. Aaron and Moses, yes. All right. Yay. All right. Aaron and Moses. Uh, who was the only female judge of Israel? Deborah is correct. here. All right, uh, what musical instrument did David play? The lyre, yes, the King James version of it, right? The harp or the lyre, Yup. I'll bring it to you in a second. Uh, let me get some harder ones. So who was the apostle that replaced which who became the 13th apostle replacing Matthias that is correct um I think I got one more of these cards One more, so let's do – all right, here we go. What are the four horses in the book of Revelation? What color are the four horses in Revelation? Huh? What color was the? It was a pale horse. Okay. Who were the first two apostles to follow Jesus? They were brothers. Got it. Yeah, that's actually correct, oh, wow. Andrew and Peter. Awesome. Sweet. Here we go. Play. Awesome. I am excited tonight. We have uh, something special. Uh,
1: my good friend Bob Gascon is here and. He's been with us before at Devoted, and, uh, and he's come and shared the word and, and always done a phenomenal job. And uh, about the last year or so,
2: I went through some stuff, and I haven't seen him, saw him on, what was that, Easter. And the x man says, hey, I'm good to
1: teach if you need, if you have any need for it. And I said, we'd love to have you back. And, and he was like, okay, uh, how about May 2nd? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, yeah, we could do it this week. We could make that work. So I'm super excited that he's, and super excited to hear what the Lord has put in on his heart to share with us today. So uh, will you guys please welcome thank Bob Gaskell thanks, and thanks. Bring your attention?
2: Thanks. Uh,
0: well, thank you, Joe. And uh, thanks for letting me come in here and, uh, and teach. I always find it a, a very much a privilege to be able to, have that time. If you take one of these and pass them back, <clears throat> this isn't a fill-in-the-blank like Pastor Bob does. There's a couple of of uh, verses that I've referenced, and uh, and then some space. If you want to take some notes, great. If you don't, that's totally up to you. But um, it's just something that I kind of like to do, just to maybe have you. At some point if you want to after tonight just refer to some of these verses that we're going to be talking about. Um, tonight we're going to talk about Jonah. So kind of funny because over the last several months where I have taken a leave of absence with some medical issues for my family going through some stuff um, I found myself deep in the Old Testament and in the Old Testament uh, kind of reading through the minor prophets, which I haven't really spent a lot of time doing. I know that you know, Pastor Bob on Wednesday nights going through the Old Testament, which is really good and a, and a great time for us to make sure that we get our noses back into the Old Testament so many of us stay in the New Testament because we think, you know, well, that's the that's the church of today. But the church of today doesn't exist without the church of yesteryear and without really the faithful Jewish and Hebrews that uh, that we, we read about in the Old Testament. As you get into the minor prophets, which Jonah is a part of, and you hear minor prophets, you probably know it's not because he hasn't made it to the major leagues yet. It's just because it's a smaller book. So we got the m- major prophets and we have the minor prophets. And so Jonah has a, a, a small four-chapter, 48-verse book that we all know from Veggie Tales and Children's Stories as Jonah and the Whale, unfortunately, uh, because it really has very little to do with it, uh, the heart of the message and the theme of the message in these 48 wonderful verses. Now, the book of Jonah is really one story. It's a narrative. It's not cut up into different pieces. It's not a didactic writing where you're, you're having to follow different rules and regulations. This is a story. But it's a very unusual one for a lot of reasons. The prophets were given a word of God, and that word was to deliver to a group of Hebrews. Or it was about what was happening in the nations around them and what was going to happen and befall those nations. But it was different here because this was a word of God given to a prophet who was to take this to a Gentile land and in the land give these people a word from God that essentially if they didn't turn their ways, they were going to be destroyed. That's a pretty rough message to give to a foreign area, especially Gentiles. We'll talk about that more in a minute. On top of that, this story was rather odd because it's not about the message as much as it is about the messenger. As you read through these four chapters, you realize this is like reading somebody's diary because this is about the attitude and the actions of a prophet who looks to be anything but a prophet. Matter of fact, my title on here is Jonah and his non-profit ministry. Kind of a play on the 50C31s, prophet kind of organizations and ministries because he acted nothing like a typical prophet. Nothing like you would expect a prophet to act. God says, here, I want you to take this word. Jonah says, no way, Yahweh, and turns the other way. And it's very odd. And so you see in this four-chapter book that the people who are going to receive this word should reject it, and instead they repent and receive it. And the very one who is rebellious against the word of the Lord, the prophet who should repent, rejects it. And then the story of all things doesn't even end. Chapter 4 leaves you hanging. It's incomplete. And I go, well, this is a weird book. So as I was reading through, doing my reading and going through the old prophets, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, major and the minor prophets, I kept going back to this book of Jonah. I go, I don't I really want to teach from this. When I first started teaching, I had the opportunity to do that at at Yorba Linda Friends Church, when we started attending there back in the late 1986. Uh, my first teaching opportunity was the director of youth uh, ministries asked me if I wanted to teach. My wife and I started teaching five-year-olds, and one of the first stories was Jonah and the whale. And the whole thing was about a whale and Jonah, and, of course, the veggie tales and the flannel boards back then, and all of it always showed Jonah in this whale, and, you know, cartoonish kind of... of uh, uh, Picture of, of both of them, and, uh, and that's where the story kind of, you know, lied, right? But we have it all wrong. The story is so deep that it's anything but a children's story. There is so much information in these four chapters. It talks about nationalism, talks about jealousy, talks about rebellion, it talks about repentance, it talks about loving your enemies that wasn't a message back in the old testament in the new testament we know that's the message jesus gave and it still wasn't received very well in the old testament oh boy was it not received well this was this was not a message any hebrew wanted to hear about loving their enemy and we'll talk about that more in a minute so the story is really upside down it's it's kind of twisted if you really want to know the truth you go this is, this is just, something's not right here. Something's fishy. I, I had to throw that in there. It's was part of the whole thing. But, but, when, you, but when you break it down into its, its smaller pieces, you see three themes within this theme. Number one is fleeing from God. Number two, you see, is the fear of God. And the third part you see, as we enter the fourth and last chapter, is frustrated with God and it really is strange when you see these three descriptions at least two of them that don't seem to fit how you would think a prophet should or does act in the old testament and yet it's the very character of this man Jonah so what do we know about Jonah we know very little about him in scripture we see him for the first time pop up in 2 Kings chapter 14, and your papers have that reference. In verse 20, verses 23 through 25, he appears um, in the kingdom reign of uh, the northern kingdom, um, and, and Jeroboam II, the, the who was one of the worst of the 20 kings in the northern kingdom. So just to give you a little bit of background on that, we had the time of the judges that Somebody answered already. Deborah, right? Female, at the time of the judges. We had the united kingdom, though the last of the judges, Samuel, was the one that went to, to David. But in the meantime, Hebrews wanted a king like all the other nations around them. And so we got Saul. And then Samuel went and anointed David, and we got David. And after David was Solomon. And after that, we had a divided kingdom where the north separated from the south. And they were not only at odds with one another, but they were really almost enemies of one another. And during this time, we have Jonah, who is right in the northern kingdom there. And so we see, we see him as he, as he almost supports one of the worst kings that the northern kingdom had ever seen. He is from Gath Heifer. Doesn't mean much to us, but maybe from a geographic standpoint, it's about... It's just a few miles, about three miles north of Nazareth. So we know Nazareth. We've heard that. We know where that's at. And I only bring that up not to tell you, well, you should know about this particular place, but just to tell you as we read through the first few verses where that geography really comes into play. But that's all we know about them. Then we know that Jesus and Matthew references um, Jonah and Nineveh, by the way, as the scribes and the Pharisees. want to see more signs from Jesus, and he says, no, this wicked generation, you're not going to see any more signs except that of Jonah and the three days in the belly of the whale. All right, so our Jesus is referring to this nasty, rebellious prophet. So what that tells me is a couple of things. Number one, that we unfortunately have a very small myopic view of Jonah through these four verses, and it happens to be at his worst moment. He could have lived his whole life, and guess what? We've recorded his worst moment. And actually, he may have recorded it himself. We're not sure. What does that look like to you and I? Um, It looks like this. In our history, and in the biblical history, we seem to remember people by another person. They are eternally tied into one another, linked together, either by another person or an event. For example, this is your time to jump in. For example, if I say the name Adam, you're going to think of Eve. You can't think of Adam without thinking of Eve. What about if I say Cain? Abel. I mean, pretty simple, right? Uh, if, if, If we stop there with just the association, we haven't really developed the character, just who they're tied to. That's all. If I say Shadrach, who else would you think of? You can't think of one without the other two. And of course, if you think of the fiery furnace, you think of the event. So there you go. Do we know much more about these guys? Well, a little bit about what they ate, and they were vegetarians, or maybe vegans. But besides that, you know, they were were committed. But that's the event. When you think of Daniel, what do you think of? The lions then. It's an event. They're tied together. When you think of Jonah, you think of? The whale or the big fish. Not really a whale, but everybody refers to this animal as a big fish or this, this uh, excuse me, this, this big fish as a whale. So, so it's, it's okay, it's fair to think about that because it helps us to remember. But unless we go a little bit deeper, we don't really know the person. We can only know what's written here because that's all that the Lord really wants us to know. The rest of the story about his personal life probably wasn't important. We talk about Moses, and he's got all all kinds of things we associate with. Moses, okay, the Exodus, the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments. But we're talking about a lifespan of how many years, maybe, for him? 120, and we got three or four events? So it's almost not fair to categorize, and yet God purposely put in certain events and certain things so that we would understand that particular issue that's within that particular book. As we go through this, I want to point out not only some of these verses we're going to talk about, I'm going to talk about it more of a narrative. So, um, you guys all look like different faces from the last time that I was here last, but usually I'll teach in a manner where it says, let's break down these verses and see what it means. We're going to really look at it from a story standpoint, even though we're going to still break down the ver- verses, but I'm going to give it to you in narrative style, much like it's written in narrative style, so that we get the picture through a story. Like for me, I can watch a movie and get a whole lot more than maybe grinding through a book, right? You, get the, you don't get all the details, but you get, okay, I got the idea of this, right? So my wife would rather read the book first and then see the movie and see if it matches. I'd rather see the two hour movie first and see if I would really want to spend 10 hours reading the book. So just the way that we learn sometimes. But let's take a look at, at uh, Jonah chapter 1. And before we do that, as we always should, let's just pray and ask the Holy Spirit to just have the freedom to speak to us where we're at today. Father, as we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, I just ask that you just open our hearts, our ears, you keep us alert. Uh, Father, that you allow us to be able to take in your word deep into our heart and soul. And Father, not that we just learn more about this prophet, but that we become more in love with Jesus. And that as we walk out of here, there are some practical things that we can use, Father, that, that will allow us to be able to share in a dark world um, the, the precious news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, let's just start out, typically, chapter 1, verse 1, as we hear in the other, prof- or the other prophetic words in the other prophets, both the major and the minor prophets. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. All right, well, as we see these other prophets, they start out all similar. The word of the Lord came to an oracle, the vision. We get that. The Lord is speaking to his prophet, and his prophet is to take this word out. So, so far, so good. Nothing seems unusual. Everything seems about right and normal. Arise, go to Nineveh. In the New Testament, we see that when the Holy Spirit talks to Philip and tells Philip the eunuch, I want you to arise and go to a desert road. And talk to, he ends up talking to the Ethiopian eunuch. Arise and go. Well, what does Philip do? He arise, arises. arises, arises. He gets up and he goes, just like we're supposed to do if we get a word from God. Verse 3, everything changes. I mean, we got two verses of normal, and the rest is crazy from here on in. Verse 3 says, but Jonah, but means instead of, but Jonah. But Jonah arose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, Found a ship which was going to Tarsus, paid the fare, and went down into it to go to the uh, down down into it to go with them to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. Okay, let me give you some geography here. So he's up in Gath Hefer, he's up in the Nazareth area, and he goes about 60 miles south to go to Jappa. He gets on Joppa, he jumps on a boat pays his fare and immediately goes down below deck, goes to sleep. That ship, that cargo ship, is headed east to Tarshish. God said, I want you to get up from where you're at and I want you to go to Nineveh up north and a little bit east, 500 miles. Instead, he goes 60 miles south, gets on a boat going 2,000 miles east. What does that look like? It looks like Me going to Joe and say, Joe, you have a calling to go up to Reno, Nevada, and speak to a church, and Joe says, okay, I'll get up, I'll go down to Long Beach, get on a boat, and he goes to Hawaii. That's kind of the difference of 500 miles and 2,000 miles that way. It's the wrong direction, Joe. I want to get away from that duty. I'm not going to it, I'm going away. It's the first wrong thing for a prophet to completely ignore God's calling, that's what he's supposed to do. And he essentially, by his actions says, I'm not gonna do it. And I wonder how many of us have that same kind of attitude where God says, I want you to do this, or I don't want you to do that, and you go, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and then you go in the opposite direction. Knowing full well that all you're doing is getting away from what God has called you to do. I've done that more than once. Thankfully, as we'll see here, our God is a God of second chances. However, Jonah makes no bones about it, gets on the ship, and he goes to sleep. As we get into verse number four, we see something else that seems a little bit strange, at least to me and us, as we read, verse four says, And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Uh, somebody turn to Psalm 139 for me. Psalm 139 and read verses 7 through 10. Somebody be bold and brave and not cause us to delay too long. And Psalm
2: 139, verses 7 through 10. Where shall I go from here? Where shall I, go? I ascend to heaven? Then she was there any way for him to really escape the presence of the Lord? Did he not know this as a prophet?
0: Well, he must have known that, and I'll tell you why he knew that. We'll see that in chapter 2. But he must have known what the scripture says, he, he had access to that, he knew that this God was a God that was ever-present, that he couldn't hide from him. yet he tried to. At least that's what it sounds like in our translation. I went to the Jewish writings. I took a look at what a rabbi said about this, verse, verse, end of verse 3, and he says, no, he wasn't trying to escape God's presence. What he was doing is escaping his duty. You go, well, what's that? Well, that means that up until this time, there really hadn't been a prophet that was told to go into a Gentile land and give this word, and so it was thought that God would talk to the prophets within their own land in Israel, and if he got away from Israel, the further he got away, the, you know, less he would hear God's word and God would speak to some other prophet. He didn't want to do it. We'll find out why in a minute, but he didn't want to do it, and so he was escaping, he was resigning from his duty. Well, you know if god wants you he's gonna get you now i don't know how many of you have ever watched uh, either the series or the movies um mission impossible but i used to watch that in the 60s i'm old enough to remember watching that in the 60s and early 70s of course tom cruise made it re-popular in recent years but it was interesting the way it would start out well i always look forward to that because uh, the actor would always go to a drawer or someplace and I'll open up a vault or a safe or a file case and there would be a tape recording in there and there'd be a, a portfolio, an envelope. He'd open it up and he said, turn on the recorder and it said, good morning, Mr. Phelps. And then proceed to see what's inside that envelope. And you'd see a, a picture, a portfolio of somebody or something. And then it says, your mission, should you decide to accept it? And then on when the episode. And it was great. We have the same thing here. God says, Jonah, your mission is to get up and go to Nineveh. But instead of following directions, he says, Nope. Puts it down. Because of that, something happens. God says, You don't understand. This is not should you decide to accept it. This is what you're going to do for me. Whatever it takes me. To do to you, I'm going to do to you. So you either do it the hard way or the easy way. But Jonah decided to do it his way. So he gets in the boat, and he starts to take off, and this massive storm hits this boat. I want you to picture this. You're on the boat, and you're there with these salty sailors who have, you know, have sailed the rugged seas before. They are taking cargo from one place to the next, because that's what they do. That's how they made money. They're in this ship, and they're headed to Tarshish, 2,000 miles east of where their land is right now. Somewhere between here and there, this storm hits. These sailors now go into a panic. They haven't seen anything quite like this before. Panic so much so that they decide, oof, we better start ditching the cargo. We've got to get this stuff off of the ship, so we don't lose the ship. So I can just see them in the ship here, tossing and being turned, and the ship's starting to crackle and fall apart, and they've got all of their livelihood on deck, and they're throwing it overboard. They are that panic-stricken. They're throwing over the very reason they're on this, so that they won't die. But nothing happens good from here on in, for them, until. So in verse 4 and verse 5, we see this wind, this, this gale wind continue up, and even with the cargo overboard, it doesn't help the ship. Somebody read Psalm 107, verses 23 through 30 for me. Psalm 107? Someone other than Joe. Come on, guys.
2: Psalm 107, verse 23 through 30. Can you picture what's going on here? Can you
0: see this ship going back and forth and these guys staggering around like they're they're drunken sailors, worried about what's happening? They're dumping all the cargo. Things are not working. And so everybody is uh, encouraged to pray. These are Gentiles, not Jews. They have all these different gods. So everybody's praying to their God to please stop this weather. Please save us. Nothing is happening. It's getting worse. They don't know what to do. In the meantime, the captain says, Okay, let's see all you sailors. Everybody's praying to their God. There's one other guy on board. Where is he? He's down below. So the captain goes down below and wakes him up. What are you doing sleeping? Pray to your God. Meanwhile, up on deck, they're all together going, What are we going to do? Let's draw lots. It has to be one of us, there has to be a reason, because that's kind of how they thought with these multiple gods. Something bad happens, there must be one of you that's causing it. And the lot falls on this stranger, Jonah. So they quickly get a hold of Jonah, and they start asking him, who are you? Where are you from? What's your occupation? Verse 8, what people are you from? Jonah proudly in verse 9 says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God. Yahweh of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Well, verse 10 kind of tells it all because now their sailors are extremely upset. They know who this Yahweh is. They had heard the stories of what happened to the Pharaoh in Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea and the drowning of all the soldiers. They knew about the plagues and what this Yahweh brought upon them, and they're thinking, oh, no. So they're crying out to God, And they ask Jonah, what do we do with you? And Jonah just says, toss me overboard. Now, why would he say that? And some would say, well, he didn't want to take the message. Okay, he didn't want to take the message he was escaping, but now he's going to die. Why would he do that? Well, he did that because he knew who caused this wind and waves and crashing sea. And he came to the realization that this is me. And maybe he came to a saving grace where he says, I don't want to take you all down with me. It's not your fault. Toss me over. I could just hear that in the heart and the voice of a prophet. Some say he didn't say that at all. He probably just said, just toss me over. I'd rather die than take this message into Nineveh. It could be either way. We don't know that. And maybe that's not as important as what the action was itself because Jonah does not take time to repent to God. He could have just said, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Could have repented, he still refused to do that. In the midst of all of this, the ship's going down, everybody's going to die, including him and all these other sailors involved, and yet he says, toss me over. Well, sailors don't want to do that. That's going to bring more bad luck. And that's going to put them in worse graces. And so, no, we're not going to do that. What do they try to do? They try to row this boat into shore. I can just imagine a cargo boat. They're all getting where they're, oh, really? That's going to do something. I don't think they probably moved an inch. And the storm increased. And they're more panicky. Now they go to God. They go to Yahweh. Don't hold this against us. Don't hold his blood against us. We'll do what Jonah wants to do, and we'll toss him over. And so they do. They toss him over. And what happens? What happens is that the sea calms to meat. The sailors who saw that, they repent, they honor God. But our Jonah hasn't at this point yet. Now here's the big, here's the, uh, the big entrance of the fish. In verse number 17, chapter 1, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Besides that, we see him in the stomach of the fish in chapter 2, verse 1, and then in chapter 2, verse 10, as he's vomited out. That's it for the fish, but it happens to be part of the grandiose story that kids get. That's kind of like going to Paris going into the Louvre and looking at the Mona Lisa, or getting a chance to stand in front of Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper and honoring just the paintbrush and not talking about the artist. The big fish was no more than the tool of our almighty God. That's it. It was a tool. He used this fish to move Jonah to where he wanted him to go. Now there are skeptics that have looked at that and studied and said, You know, come on, he's going to survive in a fish for three days? Yeah. We have a lot of stories in history published. I saw a bunch of them on YouTube. I was surprised how many there were of people that have gotten swallowed by a large fish for hours, days, and even for a few days and still survived it. How they came out of it was, well, pretty ugly picture because of the stomach acids of the fish. They came out completely bleached white as a ghost, no hair, and smelling pretty horrible, obviously. Can you imagine that picture? He's vomited onto the land and ends up in Nineveh like that? Well, I'd I'd believe anything this guy said, too. (laughs) But the point is that here we are in the belly of a fish, and Jonah, now going into chapter 2, says, Okay, I have come to my senses. I have come to my senses, Lord. I recognize you as the King of the Universe. He's now reminded of His Majesty. Thank you for saving me. Ladi, ladi, ladi. He goes on with some proverbs and some, or excuse me, some Psalms and some lamentations. So he obviously knew Scripture, and he's doing pieces of them here and there in this wonderful poetic prayer that stops a little bit short of a repentance but a recognition of who God is and a recommitment to his vow. And that's what we see as we see verse 9 in chapter 2, and he says, But I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. In other words, I made a vow, and I need to fulfill it. You did this to me, you saved me, I know that you're here, and I know that... There's no darkness to you. It's only light. I know you come to see. I get all of that, and I am reminded of that. I'm also reminded of the very vow I made, and I will fulfill that. That's my commitment. But it's just short of a repentance. How do I know that? Well, we'll see that in chapter 3. Well, let's look at chapter 3. Chapter 3 starts out interesting. It says, Now the uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim uh, proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So pretty much a repeat of the first couple of verses in chapter 1. Jonah, you didn't get it the first time, so let me repeat this to you. He gives him a second chance, and we know through Scripture, we go to Matthew chapter 18, we see that that Peter asked Jesus, how many times should we forgive somebody? Seven times? You know, like one for every day? Because really up until that time, the Jewish tradition was to forgive somebody three times, and after that, that's it. All bets are off. That's what Amos said to the nations around that had done injustice to Israel. Three times, that's it. No more forgiven after that. So Peter was being rather magnanimous. How about seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. In other words, don't count it. Just keep forgiving. That's not a message that the Jews back in the Old Testament bought into very easily. As a matter of fact, at all. And so to hear a message of forgiveness was a little bit strange on a larger scale. Let alone who he was going to take this message to, but he vowed that he'd make that commitment. So Jonah arose in verse three and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding uh, was an exceedingly great city, a three days' walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one days' walk, and he cried out and said, "Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown." So well, let me give you another picture. Here is this prophet in the belly of a whale or a big fish, spit out on the, uh, on the land, who now finds his way into Nineveh, looking awful, I'm sure, smelling terrible, I'm convinced, going into a major city of Assyria. Not only is Nineveh a major city, it is the capital of Assyria. Assyria is massive. There are the big guys on the continent. They are the empire not to mess with. There isn't anybody more, more powerful or bigger than they are. Nineveh, according to chapter 4, is a city at least of 120,000 people and cattle, livestock. It also says that don't know their left from the right, God says to, to the prophet, which could mean that he's referring to 120,000 children. Which then would mean we have a population in Nineveh of maybe somewhere about six hundred thousand to maybe eight hundred thousand people. I don't know if you realize how big that is, but that's the size of Anaheim, Brea, Yorba Linda, and Fullerton together. That's a pretty big town, surrounded by a seven-foot wall. I mean, excuse me, a a seven-mile wall, seven miles around this city. It was fortified. It was a a place to be reckoned with. It was difficult to penetrate if you were the enemy. But this city was wicked. God says that in the beginning in chapter 1, their wickedness has come up before me. But we know from history, from archaeological findings of Nineveh on reliefs of how bad they were because they memorialized it in in their reliefs. They carved into the walls what they had done to their enemies. And what they had done to their enemies was the most brutal thing ever seen in history up to that point. They would not only kill their enemies, they would torture them, they would skin them alive, they would cut off parts of their body and send it back to family members. One of the ways that they would kill somebody is they'd go shake their hand and then proceed to cut off their limbs while they were shaking their hand. Smiling at them. They would cut off their heads, stick them on skewers, and put them around the city limits so that the enemy would know not to do what they did. And that's just the beginning of it. It was known as the Bloody City. You take a look at Nahum, it talks about this bloody city. That's these guys. They are wicked in what they did and how they did it. They were idolaters, and they really commanded the, the nations around them to be idolaters as well. And everything that you can possibly think against the Ten Commandments, they did. And yet God told this prophet, I want you to go into that land. And he says, no. Now he's saying, okay, through all of this, I get it. I'm not going to have a choice, so I'm just going to do it. So here he is, going into this land, three days' walk around this city. One day in, he starts barking it out. Now, the reason I say that in chapter 2, his poetic prayer... Falls a little short of repentance is because verse 4 it says, Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk and cried out, and he said, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then he stops and walks out of the city. That's eight words in English, but in Hebrew it's only five. He says, Five words. He goes into this city and says five words because he doesn't want to say anymore. He doesn't want repentance to happen here. He wants vengeance to happen. Because Israel was at the wrong end of a sword years before. Israel was one of the many places that had been brutalized by these very people. Israel Israel had gone through some terrible times with the city of Nineveh and or with Assyria as a whole. He didn't want any part of that, but yet God called him to do that. So he says, okay, I'll do the minimum. I will go in and give these five Hebrew words. I'm done, and I'm out of here. Fortunately, the word of God is active and sharper than any two-edged sword, so sometimes we give too many words, and God says, I don't need all of that word salad stuff. I just want my word to go through." And unbeknownst to our prophetic uh, prodigal, a prophet, he, uh, he gives the five words and probably hoping that they wouldn't take and he leaves the city. But from verse 5 to verse 10, we see something that nobody expected. The people of Nineveh all repent. As they're repenting, the word gets to the king who should not have repented, should have rejected, and should have just gone after his people, but instead, he repented. Not only that, he made a proclamation, a declaration, that everybody now, everybody in Nineveh was to fast. No food, no water. Not just you, but your cattle as well. Your livestock. Dress everybody up in sackcloth, and we are going to mourn over this. And we are going to hope and pray that Yahweh will not bring calamity on us. And in verse 10, in fact, God saw their deeds and they turned from their wicked ways. Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Now the entire book of Jonah comes down to the why. Why was our prophet so reluctant to do that? Well, I talked to you about who these Assyrians were and how brutal they were, but listen to this reaction of Jonah to what God just did in verse ten. But it greatly chapter chapter four verse one. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. I mean, I don't know how much more I can emphasize what that means—being angry. At Almighty God fighting Almighty God. He was angry. Why was he angry? And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this was not this what I said? Well, I was still in my own country. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. It's your fault, God. That's why I'm trying to run away. Why? Because I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. I knew you were going to forgive them. This is a bloody, awful, idolatrous place, and you forgave them. And instead, You should have taken care of business and punished them. They deserve to be punished. They deserve to be killed. And you forgave them. And the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Jonah didn't answer. What did Jonah do? Jonah leaves the city, goes outside the city walls, He sits east of the city. He looks back and he's waiting for them to repent from their repentance. He wants to see God bring down fire and destroy them. Maybe it didn't take. Maybe they've changed their mind. So I see him out there sitting in the middle of this desert heat. He builds a little shelter. He's sweating. He's getting scorched. He's starting to pass out. He wants to die. God takes mercy on him and he lets this plant grow. And it provides shade. Jonah's just so excited he has shade. Grateful he has shade. Was to sleep, but God appoints this worm to kill this bush. And this bush, this tree, now dies. And the next day, Jonah's back to mad and kill me because he's starting to faint again and he's going to die. And yet here he is just sitting there waiting for these people to change their mind to watch them all die. And God says, See Jonah, do you have reason to be upset like this? And Jonah says, "You're right. unto death, I do." But Jonah,
2: you had compassion for that tree, bush, that plant, but you have no compassion
0: for the hundred and twenty thousand that don't know their left and from their right. Shouldn't, shouldn't you feel something about that? Jonah does not answer that at all. It just ends. God asks a question. There's no answer. just stops. I kind of scratched my head. I listened to several different commentaries. I read different things. I dug real deep. Um, I went into some of the archaeology studies and writings, too. I took a look at the book of uh, Josephus, who was a historian who wrote about this. And by the way, what he writes about Jonah is almost exactly what we see here. A couple of additions: one, he sh- talks about where the where the big fish split, spits him out. That it was somewhere it got halfway between Joppa and Tarshish, and the and the big fish somehow made this kind of loop inside uh, uh, the the Black Sea area. I uh, call it, uh, you know, just north and east of where where Nineveh was, and spit him out there. So instead of bringing him back to where he was at, kind of made a little circle and and dumped him off in this little area and he made his way back down. So anyhow, line by line, it's almost exactly the same. And that's outside of the Bible. So obviously it's there, but even he says, I don't get it. How How does, there's no answer at no end. But I think the whole end to this book is, what would you do? How would you react to it? And the way I read it was, God is asking Jonah, he says, and should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which you know, more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals. I started to think about that from my standpoint. We see Nineveh, we see Assyria, but today Assyria is modern-day Iraq. And Nineveh is modern-day Mosul. It's right across the Tigris River. So you've got Nineveh and you've got Mosul that actually look at each other. And we've had some history in this past 20 years with that country and with that city and other cities. It's 250 miles north of Baghdad. We know Baghdad. When you start thinking about all of that, you go, After 9-11, most of us here are not old enough to have experienced it like some of us older ones have. But after 9-11, when this happened and the Twin Towers went down, those of us watching it on TV were absolutely stunned. It was like an out-of-body experience. But if the truth be known, Christian or not, we were angry. We were angry at what happened and the loss of 3,000 people. We were angry at the very man or men or people that were behind this. We wanted our justice, not God's justice. Few of us actually got to our knees and prayed for the salvation of Osama bin Laden, for the salvation of those involved in the killing of our people. We prayed for that to come to justice, We prayed for the families of those that had died. But we didn't really, you know, speak for the majority of us, pray for the salvation of these people. And yet God says, I love all of them. I wish that none would be lost, but all would come to salvation. And I want you believers who have that mercy and grace to take this message to your enemies, like Jesus said, not just in word, but in deed. And so, to me, as I read through this and started getting into the deep recesses of this, I thought, how much of this rebellious Jonah is in me? How many people around me over the years have I felt, I hope they get their justice. I hope they get their come comeuppance. I don't like what they did to me. I don't like what they said about me. I'm not going to pray for them. I'm praying that the Lord's going to take vengeance against them. I want that fire to come down and take care of them. They caused harm to my son. They caused harm to my daughter. Pain to my wife or somebody in my family. And I've had something on all of those fronts happen. And I see nothing but red in front of me and nothing but hatred towards those people.
2: And yet, God says, I understand. I love them. And I need
0: you to reach out into where they are. Whether it's in the jail, whether it's across the town in another city, whether it's in your own family, somebody that's offended you, a friend, a neighbor, a colleague, someone in church, that you just say, I just stay away from them. you move to the other side and yet we don't have that option just like jonah jonah realized that okay god is going to god is going to do his thing and we're either going to do it the hard way or the easy way but god is going to do their thing you know people that you can reach that joe will never reach that i can never reach that i will never talk to there are people in your midst who you might be angry at or hold a grudge or have said things about you or have done things to you that you just want them to pay the price for it. And yet God says, no. love them. Pray for them. Pray that they come to a saving knowledge of me. That's a hard thing to do. Jonah may have all kinds of things going through his head. One, one, you want to do this to these evil people. I don't want to give them you, God. I want them to pay the price for all the evil things that they've done. Maybe Jonah says, no, you're our God. You're the God of the Jews. You're the God of us Hebrews from way back when and will always be. We don't want these Gentiles. The only good Gentile is a dead Gentile. That's a harsh harsh nationalism kind of title and story to carry around with you. Maybe Jonah's thinking, oh boy, if I go over there and I share God's message and they repent, I got to go back and face my countrymen who hate them. What are they going to think about me?
2: Talking to my wife about this, about somebody that did our family wrong. And when
0: this happened a while back, I reluctantly said, we got to pray for them. Reluctantly. I'm sorry, that's just reluctantly, but we got to pray for them. Changed my heart by doing that. My wife said, I won't. I get it. I've been there, done that. But if I were at that moment, in the, the deepest part of that problem with that person, if I were to say, okay, that's fine, I understand but I'm going to go over there to where they're at, and I'm going to spend some time with them. Guess what? I I said that. She lit up. She says, you better not, because all of a sudden now, I become part of the enemy. Now, just confessing and being transparent, because we've all been there. You are befriending these people? Had that situation where someone's done me wrong at work and is a good friend of mine, and then they become friends with them and go, Oh, no, 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 that's the enemy over there. And yet, and yet, that's what we're called to do. When Jesus says, Love your enemies, I mean, look at it, it's easy to love people that love you, it's easy to love those that do good by you, it's easy to love those that encourage you and build you up. It's really hard to love those that have belonged to you. Yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. So as you read through the book of Jonah, I want you to read it next time with a little bit different attitude in going through the story. It's not about a fish. It's not about somebody being swallowed and being vomited up. It's just a small part, three verses out of 48 verses. But you've got 45 verses that talk about the deep riches of God's love and amazing grace. And it is amazing when you think that he could save a poor wretch like us. We are nothing special, folks. And it is only grace through faith that we are saved, not of our works. So none of us have the right to boast. And none of us have the right to say, I got my salvation, I'm keeping it here, and I'm not sharing it with anybody. You go find it yourself. Not an option for us. So read it, read it with that different kind of attitude because I think we need to. And um, I'm just so blessed by spending time in it because I tell you, um, I've been a believer for almost 50 years. I don't know that I've ever dug this deeply into Jonah. I've spent months in it. I I feel like I, I know the prophet. I feel like I know his heart, but I also feel like I've lived it. And I'm embarrassed by it, looking at it. It's like standing up in front of a mirror and going, there are some people in my life that I have this nasty bug towards that I need to commit to prayer. And it's not just people, it's situations. It's from politics to other people in other lands, the people that we come across and we see on a daily basis. I've, we had a big meeting here a couple of years ago with the uh, POK protecting our kids, and the sanctuary was filled. And uh, got here from work a little bit late. We're sitting towards the back, and in comes
2: An obvious different person dressed in a burqa, full burqa, just a view. And
0: I tell you, for the first half hour, I just kind of stared at her and wondered what was in that backpack, honestly. And it just hit me. I said, What am I doing? We're we're in the heart of all of this problem. What am I doing? Instead, I just said, Oh, Lord, forgive me. And I just started praying. She's here because she's concerned about her kids. What an opportunity for us. I could have looked way away from that. I was looking at like, oh, can we trust you? Are you going to blow this place up? It's a prejudice that he had, we have. God says, there's no room in that. No room in that in my kingdom. And no room in that in our heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we could just be together and open up your word. Father, I just pray that you have spoken to our heart, that you just allow us to not only the richness of your word, Father, but use it in a practical way, that we may may be a people that pray for our enemies, not just talk about it, not just teach from it, but actually get to our knees and, and pray and cry over the very souls of our enemies. So, Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these brothers and sisters in Christ. I ask that you just bless them as they continue on with their class. Bless Joe as he, as he teaches and facilitates and
2: grows this group. And we thank you in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.